blessing it is to just be your, your child and how you are just so overwhelmingly awesome in all of your attributes. You are so, so generous. And you don't just give, you give abundantly more. We praise you this morning. Bless the reading and, and preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning as we continue our series on what the Bible says about, I want to talk about, of all things, the destructive power of water. I'm sure you guys remember about, well, actually it was over 11 years ago, uh, there was a magnitude 9.0 earthquake that struck at uh, 2.46 p.m. in northeastern Japan. Do you remember that? It's called the Great Sendai, S-E-N-D-A-I, Sendai, Sendai, earthquake. And now the epicenter occurred at a depth of just under 19 miles under the water and initiated a series of large destructive tsunami waves. Uh, I wasn't here in Washington State. Did you guys get any of those waves at all? Because I know they did in California and Oregon. Okay. Um, and of course, what I remember is it inst- instigated a major nuclear accident at the Fukushima Daki power plant. Uh, the tsunamis created by the earthquake, I didn't know if you knew this, they reached speeds that approached about 500 miles per hour. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. It generated waves uh, uh, as high as 33 feet high in northern Japan. Uh, 11 to 12 feet high along the coasts of Kauai and, Ho- and, and Hawaii. Did I say K-A-U-A-I? Kauai. Thank you. Kauai and Hawaii. And there were five-foot waves along the island of Shemia in the Aleutian Island chain. Several hours later, nine-foot tsunami waves struck the coast of California and Oregon. And 18 hours later, Waves roughly one feet high reached the coast of Antarctica and caused a portion of the Salzburger ice shelf to break off its outer edge. Even though we typically think of water as something that's soothing, like taking a hot shower or a warm bath, and it sounds pretty good right now in light of the weather outside, doesn't it? Water is surprisingly heavy and destructive. A typical bathtub holds about 40 gallons or so of water. Do you know how much that weighs? 40 gallons of water weighs? 330 pounds. 330 pounds. A cubic yard of it, filling what at first glance seems a modest volume of three feet by three feet by three feet, weighs nearly 1,700 pounds. When water is moving at 30 or 40 miles an hour, not 500 miles an hour, but at 34 30 or 40 miles an hour, like the tsunami that inundated northern Japan, the heaviness of water, as you can imagine, turns deadly. So imagine just 1,700 pounds hitting you at that speed. And each cubic yard of water as another 1,700 pounds bearing down on you. And the destructiveness of a tsunami is not just one runaway car, because that's roughly about what a car weighs, but a fleet of them consistently slamming into you. And of course, we can be swept off our feet by a mere two feet of water. 
And according to Philip Froelich, a professor of oceanography at Florida State University, he said, and by the time you're talking about a wall of water that's 10 meters high, if that wave is two miles long into the ocean, it's basically like 100 tanks coming across you. Even though it's fluid, it operates like a solid hammer. In a rough guess, Harry Yeh, a professor of ocean engineering at Oregon State University, said that the earthquake in Japan pushed a section of seafloor 250 miles long and 50 miles down by an average of one yard. And that resulted in billions of cubic yards of water, or trillions of pounds, suddenly shifting position. That energy going into the tsunami, according to Professor Ye's estimate, was a bit less than that of an exploding atomic bomb. In addition to the damage that a tsunami can inflict among or along coastlines in particular countries, it can also have an effect on the entire Earth. Did you know that? The planet's oceans are very, very heavy, applying enormous pressure to the ocean crust. And when the distribution of that pressure is shifted, as it is during an earthquake, it can induce wobbles in the Earth's rotation. This is from Patrick or Kenneth Chang of March 12, 2011. Yeah, water can be destructive. And this morning, we're going to talk about water, and we're going to talk about space as we venture into day two of creation. And Genesis begins with the eternally pre-existent God creating out of nothing by speaking into existence the building blocks of the universe. And what are they? Do you remember? Time, space, and matter. The building blocks of the universe. And from these building blocks, God begins to create. And in review, what did God do on the first day of creation? Well, he created light. So let's talk about day two. Get in your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter one, verses six through eight, we'll look at this morning. Yes, God spoke into existence, time, space, and matter, but he actually created, as it is referenced in Genesis one, chapter two, light. It's the first thing he did on day one, he created light. He separated dark from lightness. Or darkness from light. Verses six through eight, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters that separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Let's look at verse six. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So on day one, God separated light from darkness. Day two, he separates heaven from earth. That's what the expanse is referring to. So before God can create life, which is what his goal is, he has to, create, he has to separate light from darkness and create the continuum of light and darkness in a 24-hour solar day. And then he has to separate the heavens or heaven from the earth. And how does he do it? It says, then God said. Once again, 
He simply speaks, and he gets created. He speaks everything into existence. And as day two begins, the universe was light and dark. The earth was still an undifferentiated mass of elements, completely engulfed in water. And God then begins at day two his second separation. No longer light and darkness, that's done. Now he's going to separate water from waters. That's what he says. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let's separate the waters from the waters. And this is interesting. Because on day one, the earth was still covered with water, right? Completely engulfed in water. On day two, God separated that water into two places. So you have the water that is still completely engulfing the earth. We're talking about a lot of water. And now some water that's separated and taken above. And in between those two elements of water, there is an expanse. Verse 7 repeats the same thing. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Now the question is, is how does he do it? Because the word expanse actually means spread out thinness. And the picture is of a thin area that God just kind of cuts right through the waters that surround the earth. And if you think it like this, it's like, With a knife, you cut all the way through the sphere of this undifferentiated mass of elements of the earth, separating it into two parts. There's still parts that's spherical, and water is completely engulfing it, but now there's water above it, separated by this expanse. And of course, when we say expanse, what I want you to think of as we understand it, space. That's what he's creating, space. In my introduction, I discussed the power of water and its destructive capabilities. The damage done by the tsunami and the effect on the planet, are, they are awe-inspiring, right? It's, it's sobering to think what happened you know, 11 years ago. But one cannot help but feel a newfound respect for water. Yet yeah, I want you to ponder this about God when it comes to water. He, who has measured the waters in the hall of his hand? Take your, everyone take your hand out and do this. Okay? Now, don't make it flat, make it like this. That little hollow right there, to God, what, what's in that? All of the waters. Now, it's not just all the waters that we see today. It's more water than that. Because what has he done with all that water? Some is on the earth still, engulfing it, but now there's a separate section of water that has been removed, okay? All of that water is being measured out in the hollow of his hand. And God calls this expanse, that separation of waters, heaven. Again, it's what we understand as the space above us. It actually means sky, But what is interesting, if you look at the Strong's Concordance on this, it says it's the lofty sky. It's the visible arch in which the clouds move, or as we can see now, the snow is falling from the sky, right? As well as the the higher ether where the celestial bodies revolve. So if it were a clear night, we'd look up and we would see the stars. That would be what we call heaven, or we would call it space, right? 
or God calls it, the Bible calls it, expanse. Okay? But the, what I want you to see is that up to this point, there was no heaven or space until the second day. And when God cut the water around this spherical mass, the earth, he commanded the water to rise above. And it, it, it actually, the word expanse includes the idea of, of arching like a vault, thus creating space. And the Jewish commentator Umberto Casuto writes this. He says, this marked a considerable advance in the marshalling of the components of the universe. Above now, what we can see above, if we look outside, the, stands the vault of heaven surrounded by the upper waters. So in other words, he had the water, he cut it all out. Water's still engulfing this undifferentiated mass that's called earth. And the water goes up. Like this. And that space is space. All right? Beneath it, God stretches the expanse of the lower waters. As the waters of the vast seas that we can obviously see, the ocean and so on. And still covers this heavy, undifferentiated matter on earth. In other words, the universe is beginning to take shape. Now, if you ever wonder why human beings can be so creative, one need go no further than Genesis 1, because we read of the incredible creativity of God. Because what's he going to do with that space, with that universe? Fill it with celestial bodies, such as what? Stars, a moon, a sun, galaxies, all of that, okay? So all the creative power that is going on here is of proportions. They're just absolutely beyond our capability to comprehend. And what's interesting is the scriptures repeatedly mention how God created the heavens. In short, he stretched out the heavens with his hands. Did you know that? I mean, look at this. Surely my hand founded the earth. Okay, he's laying the foundations of the earth, right? And my right hand, what? Spread out the expanse. With his right hand, he's spreading out the expanse. And I call them, they stand together. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and what? He's stretching out the heavens. Again, think of a ball. And God, I'm going to cut all around this, and I'm going to go do this. This is what he's doing, okay? And that space in between there is called space, the sky, the expanse, okay? He's just doing that. And again, if there's more verses, only it's so much to put up there. It is I who made the earth, and I created man upon it. I stretch out the heavens with my hands. And from him is coming the light to see to do this. Even though with God, light and darkness are the same, he is doing all this as the earth is rotating on its axis. What you find interesting as well is that at the end of verse 7 it says, and it was so. We find this phrase at the end of verses 9, 11, 15, 24, and 30. And this is not here for redundancy because it serves a very necessary purpose because it's written to affirm something that is fixed 
and it will not change at all. In other words, there will always be now, from now on, what? Space. But look at verse three and four of Genesis one. Then God said that there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. It does not say, and it was so. Why? Because that's not fixed. That will not last for all time. Well, why? Any guesses? Well, Revelation 22, 5. At the end, this is what happens. And there will no longer be any night. Meaning the what? There will no longer be any darkness. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. This is why there will, eventually there will cease to be Darkness because we will be light, because God is light. This is why it says, it doesn't say, and it was so. But the question that remains is this. When God separated the waters, some of the waters went up into space, right? Well, where did it go? It could be at the end of infinite space. Now, we know that there's also water in the air, right? What's it called when we see that water in the air? We see it a lot in Washington State, rain. There are some who believe that in the original creation, there was created around the earth a canopy of water. This is the view of of theologians and scientists John Whitcomb and Henry Morris, and let's take a moment and talk about what we call the water canopy theory. This is a picture of what it would look like, the earth with a water canopy around it. It's an attempt to take the Bible and explain it from a, a biblical perspective, but also with some science, but basically that there's waters that he separated. Remember he cut them out and he did this? Where did that water go? And they say that it would just kind of a, a, a water vapor or canopy encircled the earth. And these, these uh, men taught that the waters above the expanse of, or heaven were like a vapor that just engulfed the whole earth. Uh, They suggest that water vapor has the ability to transmit incoming solar radiation and to retain and disperse much of the radiation deflected from the Earth's surface. Thus, that would serve like a a global greenhouse, maintaining a a uniformly pleasant warm temperatures around the world. They say that with nearly uniform temperatures, great air mass movements would be inhibited, Windstorms would be unknown. With no global air circulation, the hydrological cycle or the water cycle, and what's the water cycle? Do you guys know that? Remember that from science? Okay, you got the oceans and there's a you know, conversation and it builds up and then rain comes down in the oceans and it just kind of keeps this whole cycle going. It says they wouldn't have any need for that. There'd be no rain except for directly over the bodies of water, which from which it might have evaporated, and with no global air circulation, because it's all protected by this canopy, there'd be no turbulence, no dust particles transported in the upper upper atmosphere. In other words, there would be less and less chance of getting allergies. (laughs) Okay? Uh, The water vapor, 
And the canopy would have been stable and not precipitate itself. Further, the planet would have been maintained only at a uniform temperature, but a comfortable uniform humidity by means of daily local evaporation and condensation, like dew or ground fog. And the combination further of warm temperature, adequate moisture everywhere would be conducive to extensive plains of lush vegetation over the world. In other words, there'd be no barren deserts, no ice caps. Okay? And a vapor canopy would be, in effect, filter out ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies. That's the reason animals live long enough to become dinosaurs, they speculate. You have people living long enough to become like Methuselah, 900 plus years old. Well, why? Because they were shielded from these ultraviolet rays because of this water canopy. But the water canopy theory is not without its difficulties. There are some, like Robert Whitelaw and Walter Brown, that say that that, that probably isn't possible because there'd be a heat problem. A large vapor ice canopy would increase heat and roast everything that lived underneath that. There's also a starlight problem. God said there'd be signs for seasons with the stars he's going to create in day three. They could scarcely have been seen. and Sunlight could not have reached through all this. And so there's all of these problems that would go on with this water canopy theory. But it is a theory that best fits, at least, what we see introduced here is a separation of waters. So there's waters below that we can actually see. Some that we can't see, it's actually in the earth, but it's there. And enough of it is still covering the entire planet. Then there's waters that have separated and they went up. Okay? Now the text of Genesis, again, it doesn't specify a canopy. But it does say there were waters above and waters below. And there have been scientists and good creation scientists who have said that this canopy theory doesn't fly. But in the end, obviously you can't be dogmatic about something like this, but it seems a reasonable scientific explanation of the text. And perhaps the solution is found somewhere in the middle, that all the problems that would come with a, a canopy of water surrounding the earth in its original creation, and the reason why that water was surrounding the earth, amongst other reasons, eventually was this. There was a great deluge of water that flooded the earth in 1656 years from its creation. In other words, there wasn't enough water left on the earth. So what did God do? This great deluge of water, and it's this water that went up, up. The waters in the heavens, God brought that back down and brought everything together and flooded everything. And then he reshaped the planet. That is the theory. But maybe God could create it in such a way and control it in such a way that there was this canopy so there wouldn't be any ill effects of it. We don't know what the correct answer is, but we do know this. That from the text, there was water below on the earth and in the earth and water that was above. We also know that the original heavens and earth had a very temperate climate. Now, how do we know that? Well, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created what? Naked. 
right? There was no shame. There was no coverings. They didn't have that. God provided the first coverings. So what kind of environment, temperate climate, would it be? Very comfortable, right? Clothing didn't really exist as far as we know until sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And that clothing wasn't even for warmth, but to hide their shame from being naked. And so for how long they lived in innocence between Genesis chapter 2 and 3, naked and not ashamed without clothing indicates the temperature did not require clothing for warmth. And on the day that God created the expanse, there was this tremendous cataclysmic movement of water coming off the earth and just literally moving to the extremities of the infinity of heaven. This is a massive, massive, powerful work of God. And the great expanse that we know as space or as heaven is taking shape and comes into being. And can you just imagine, folks, in a 24-hour period, the speed with which the whole infinite heavens was created within 24 hours? Not to mention how vast outer space is. And if all that came into being instantaneously, the full, vast universe. Let me give you just some perspective on this. And just kind of close with this. This massive act and display of power of creation on day two. How fast does light travel in a second? We went over this last week. 186,000 miles a second. Do you know how many miles that is a year? Six trillion miles a year. So just stop and think about the creative power of God exhibited on day two. God created the entire universe on day two. Universe, I mean space. And if you consider a beam of light moving at 186,000 miles per second, six trillion miles a year, and if we begin this morning at 6 a.m., and by the time you get out of bed, maybe it's 6.10, that light beam was passing the earth and heading out toward the edge of the solar system. As you sit down for your morning cup of coffee at, say, 6.41 a.m., the little beam has now passed Jupiter. And when I get up to preach at about 10.55, that little light beam was passing Pluto. Now, let's look, at the end of, uh, let's look ahead at the end of the week. As you leave work on Friday afternoon, that little beam of light will just have been le- leaving our solar system. And then, the good news is, you don't have to think about that light again until May of 2026. After all this waiting, over four years of waiting, this beam of light has only reached the nearest star to our sun called Proxima Centauri, which is actually a conflux of several stars. If you go on to the year 2033, 11 years from now, our little light beam has only 20 stars behind it. (laughs) Only 20. And our sun appears as a rather bland, yellowish star disappearing into galactic darkness. Imagine this little beam of light has been heading now to the constellation Sagittarius. On this path, 
They'll be headed for the center of our Milky Way galaxy. It has to travel 32,000 years before it will reach the center of our galaxy. And at 6 trillion miles per year, but wait. It still has another 50,000 years to get to the other side of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. And when it does, it will have left behind about 100 billion stars. Now remember, the Milky Way galaxy is only an average star galaxy. As far as we know, there are at least 50 billion galaxies in the known universe. Much of that has been determined, obviously, by the Hubble telescope. Now, our little light beam that started this morning at 6 a.m. has to travel another 80,000 years at its 6 trillion miles per year pace to reach the Magellanic Clouds, which is the closest galaxy or series of galaxies to our Milky Way. So here we are now, this little light beam that's left this morning, it's 160,000 years into the future. And our little light beam, still moving at the same speed of 186,000 miles a second, 1.8 million years of empty space before it reaches the end of the Andromeda galaxy, which is close enough to Earth to be seen with the naked eye. Looking back from there at the Milky Way, you would see a fuzzy elliptical patch, similar to what Andromeda looks like to us on a fall evening. Now, if our little light beam travels a couple more millions of years, it'll encounter, for the first time, really open space. And our little light friend will now travel another 20 billion years before it reaches the edge of the known universe that we know about. And after over 20 billion years of travel, with about 50 billion galaxies behind it, with about 100 billion stars in those 50 billion galaxies, Psalm 8, verse 3 says, Our little light beam has only seen the work of God's fingers. <laughs> God did this, something that big. Okay? In a 24 hour period with his hands. And here's the thing about it Job put it this way Behold, these are what? The fringes of his ways. And a faint a word we hear of him. We know that two feet of water will knock us off our feet. We know that we can't lift 40 gallons of water in a bathtub. It's just too heavy for us. We need machines to lift a three by three by three foot of water of 1,700 pounds. And we know that, that when the earthquake happens in 18, 19 miles under the water, it creates such power, the equivalent of a, almost an atomic bomb, and creates waves of water that killed just under 20,000 people, kind of just like that. And what does God do with that water? It's a fraction of all the waters that we know that exist today. If you throw in all the waters that have ever existed, he holds it in the span of the palm of his hand. And he created all of this space. The speed at with which he would have created that in a 24-hour period, it's just mind-boggling, Right? And here's the thing about this. 
I do this, and I know we're all human, you do this. We doubt God. We don't trust him. And usually it's something that, that something we need, something we want, some sort of provision, and we think that he can't do it. And yet he did. I mean, just when you go outside after this sermon, look up and get an idea. Okay? So at the end of day two, we have an unformed earth still. We have light. And now we have a vast universe. And I, I wrote down here, oh, how great and powerful are, is our God. And I said, let's praise God for his awesome power. And so I said, Frank, let's close with, very appropriately, you can stand with me, how great thou art.